May the words of our mouth, my mouth now, and the thoughts of our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, especially on this topic today as we think about sex, sexual immorality. We pray that you would give us your grace because we stand before you, all of us, in great need of it. By the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it was during a respectable dinner party uh, that a woman burst in uh, to uh, the party. She was well known locally as a prostitute. Well, Jesus um, was there at the party, and this woman had sensed Jesus' unconditional love for her and full of love for him. She came in and she uh, washed his feet with her tears and uh, with her hair. She wiped his feet. Well, those who were standing around were full of criticism for Jesus for allowing this. But he publicly defends this woman. She's been forgiven much, he says. And, as is obvious to everybody, she loves him very much. Well, as we approach one of the New Testament's key passages on sexual sin, um, I want to start by saying that this woman's experience can be our experience as well. There's no past sexual encounter or practice or addiction or trauma that need define me or you. Uh, Your life, my life, can become redefined instead, as this woman's was by a very great love for Jesus who throws open his arms of love wide for you as he did for her. Well, the last time we were in the first letter to the Corinthians, a couple of weeks back, we ended with an overwhelming statement. Have you got it open? I can't remember the page number, um, but it's, it's, uh, we just read from it. Um, we ended with this overwhelming statement of God's action and love towards his people. You were washed says Jesus, you were sanctified, you were justified, no matter what your past, and some of the Corinthians, whew, they had a past, says you were washed, sanctified, justified. And we discovered a couple of weeks ago that when God washes, sanctifies, and justifies a person, he also summons them to live according to what they have become. Are they washed? Then they must live a pure life. Sanctified? Well then, live a holy life. Justified? Okay, then, live a life righteous in the sight of God. And Paul wants to explore with them now, in a more general way, what God wants from us in one area of life, a key area of life, this pure, holy, and righteous life, which is the sexual area. That's what he addresses. Now, I'm going to break this study into three. First of all, I think we find Paul exposing some false assumptions about their sex lives. We see that verses 12 to 14. And then second, he moves on to explain to them why sexual immorality is so serious. It's verses 15 to 19. And then third, and this will be brief at the end, he exhorts them to honor God with their bodies, exposing some errors, um, explaining some things, and exhorting them to honor God with their bodies. That's verse 20. 
So first of all, exposing some false assumptions. Now, have a look at verses 12 to 14. If you've got it open, you'll see there that some of those verses are in quotation marks. And the, the thought is that perhaps Paul is quoting slogans that the Corinthians were using. That's possibly exactly what was happening. What is certain, though, is that Paul wants to correct the views expressed in those statements, in those quotes. So he mentions them in order to correct them. So two errors, basically, come up here. Two errors in their thinking that he wants to correct. The one is about freedom, and the other is about the human body. Okay, freedom, first of all. So, freedom. Their view on freedom, when it's very clear, look at the repeated phrase in verse 12. Everything is permissible for me. Everything is permissible for me. Says it twice. Somehow, that is, they'd convinced themselves that being Christians freed them from constraints on their behavior. That was the, that was the idea. And it is very possible, actually, that that attitude came from a misunderstanding of Paul's own teaching. Because, as Paul writes elsewhere, and I undoubtedly would have preached in Corinth, it was part of his uh, ministry. This comes from Galatians 5, as it happens, but it was typical of him. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Uh, and he taught, yes, that, that uh, followers of Jesus are set free from the law and the, in terms of its curse against sinners. We're set free from being slaves to sin. We're, be, we're set free from the grip of the devil. Great, say the Corinthians. No constraints then. And uh, they actually seem to have interpreted the spiritual life, as they would have called it, as a kind of a dizzy freedom from all constraint. But, says Paul to, to them, he says, there are constraints on you, even if you're right, and everything is indeed permissible. Even if that were right, even if everything were permitted, he says to them, not everything is beneficial. In fact, as we'll go on to see, some things are harmful. Or again, he says to them, suppose you're right and that everything really is permitted. He says, look at his words. He says, verse 12, I will not be mastered by anything. You know, sin crouches like a tiger at the door. That's an Old Testament image from the book of Genesis. Sin crouching as a tiger at the door. You allow it into the house... And it doesn't just come to tea like the tiger in the children's book and drink all the water in the tap and all of daddy's beer and so on and then go home having a night. No, the, the tiger masters you and enslaves and destroys. So in summary, their errors about Christian freedom threatened harm, not benefit. It threatened enslavement, not freedom. But that wasn't the only error he wants to expose. There's another one as well, and it's all to do with the human body. Have a look at verse 13. Verse 13. It's another saying. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. I take it, along with many others, that the whole sentence there should be um, in speech marks. In other words, the slogan is the whole sentence. All right, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. What does it mean? Well, I think what they're getting at is, what the saying is getting at is that bodies have needs and ways of meeting those needs. So rumbling tummies need food, which exists to satisfy the ache. 
And it seems that the Corinthians thought that the same applied to sex. Aching libidos need sex and a body. Well, it exists and has ways of satisfying them. So sex is just fulfilling an urge. There's no more moral significance, so they seem to think. There's no more moral significance in having sex than in performing any other bodily function, whether it's eating or whatever else it is. And besides, the quote goes on, the saying is implying as well, besides the body is destined to destruction. That's what the Corinthians seem to think. And that's the other part of the saying. God will destroy them both, both food and the stomach. Food rots, we all know that, and one day our bodies will rot. Well, that's what they thought about the human body, no future. And if that is the marker of the value of the human body, if that is its future, then, well, God can't care very much about how we use our bodies. They're not of any great significance. And that reflects a common way of seeing the body in ancient Greek thinking. It was really quite common across a lot of mindsets that the spirit, the mind, the soul, the kind of the inner me is the really important thing. And the body is just the kind of the temporal mortal case which, in, which holds the, 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 the real treasure inside, which is my soul and my spirit. My body is just a, well, it's a disposable food bag. It's a, dispen- a perishable sex tool. That's the kind of the mindset. It has no sort of eternal spiritual significance. But that's a lie. That's not true. God made our human bodies to be used for his glory. And then when he redeemed them through Jesus Christ, he redeemed our bodies to have a glorious future. So look at verse 13, second half of verse 13 and verse 14 puts it very, very clearly. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So, the thing is, what he's saying is, God made our bodies for himself. Not just our spirits and souls, but our bodies. He gave us hands to serve him, he gave us lips to praise him, he gave it. He also made us gendered and sexual. And in that area too, we are to glorify him with our bodies. See, God considers the body incredibly important. It is so much a part of the human being that he has not only created it, but through the resurrection of Jesus, he has redeemed it. Look, he says it there. By, the, by, by his power, God raised our Lord from the dead physically, And he will raise us also. If only we had a couple of hours to go through 1 Corinthians 15. That really would be an utter joy. But uh, we don't. But that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. So our bodies were created. Our bodies. Just just as you're sitting there, be aware of your body. You can probably feel your butt sitting on those hard pews. Just be aware. That body of yours, which is you... You're not in your body. That body is you. Be aware of it now. Just this is some kind of weird exercise. But just be aware. That body was created by God in the beginning. It will be redeemed through Christ at the end. And therefore, what you do with that body now is of the utmost significance to God in the present. And in the sexual area, that means 
only joining our bodies to another person's body in the context that God has intended since creation and according to the teaching of God's son, Jesus. You see, Jesus did something very interesting in his teaching on sex, which is mainly found in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. Um, he grounds that teaching in the creation of humanity at the beginning. And when the apostles create, uh, went into the ancient world, into that kind of Greeky roman world, probably the same happened when other apostles went into the Persian world to the east and so on, they took with them, they caused a sexual, a massive sexual revolution. It was huge. Of course, I'm aware, very well aware that exactly the same teaching that in that cultural context sounded revolutionary, um, in our context sounds exactly the same. It sounds reactionary and old-fashioned. But it remains what it always was. Just listen to Jesus' words. At the beginning, says Jesus, we notice how he goes back to the beginning. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, in other words, because they are male and female, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus and the apostles, who just wheel out this teaching, are clear that the Creator intends that the sexual union belongs in that context, the marriage of a man and a woman. And outside of that context... Jesus fully expects, and so do his apostles, that his followers will remain celibate. Adding, interestingly, this was part of the sexual revolution, adding that that single state was in many ways preferable to the married state. They both swings and roundabouts with both, but it's very clear that singleness, actually that was one of the main aspects of it, that singleness in this sexual revolution was raised to the most extraordinary level, celibate singleness. Well, imagine preaching that uh, in the first century Roman Empire. According to Tom Holland, historian Tom Holland, in his, in his um, brilliant book, Dominion, some of you may have read it. If you haven't, it's worth it, um, even though it's quite long. Uh, Tom Holland says, he says, in that period, forgive me for the, the, the quote here, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. Now, a PR manager might have said to those apostles, those early Christians, look, you need to just adapt Jesus' teaching, soften it down a bit on sex and marriage because it's never going to fly in the Greek-Roman world. And, um, but they didn't consult a PR consultant. They went and they preached full-on these words. Now, what effect did that have? Forgive me for uh, this quote again. The way anthropologist Joseph Heinrich puts it, you're not likely to forget the answer. He says, The church, through the institution of monogamous marriage, reached down and grabbed men by the testicles. That is, it says, that is, Jesus' teaching disciplined men, males and directed us to commit to one woman for life. And as a result, it lifted women, and in particular, it protected children who are very often missed out 
in the whole discussion of sexual and marital ethics, children. Well, what we're witnessing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is this sexual revolution in its early stage as Paul corrects the Corinthians' false assumptions about freedom. It's not freedom from all restraint, but freedom not to yield to sin's power. It's freedom, here's a verse that links with what Kevin was doing earlier on, Psalm 119, verse 32, I will run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. In other words, free, we run in the path, it, it is in obedience to, to the Lord that we find true freedom. Okay, that's the thing about freedom. And he also corrects their false assumptions about the body, as we've seen. It is not a vehicle built for the satisfaction of whatever sexual desire we may find within us. Rather, God gives that to us to use um, to his honor now in anticipation of the day when he will raise these bodies of ours. So that's the first thing. He's, un he's exposing some false thoughts among them. But now we come on to the second part. He's explaining now the seriousness of sexual sin. Now, the Corinthians, they prided themselves on their knowledge. That was one of their buzzwords, knowledge, knowledge. We, we know things. So three times Paul confronts them with the phrase, do you not know? In other words, you ought to know, and I'm telling you. And he give, offers three reasons here, three do you not knows, three reasons why Jesus' teaching in the sexual area is such a serious matter. And each one has to do with the body and the significance of the body. So first of all, they needed to know that whatever they did with their bodies involved Jesus in that very action that their bodies were performing. So, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never! So, again, this body is mine. I can, you know... What, how, your, how it feels to be in your body this morning, I don't know. You know, because it's you. Um, that body, if you're a believer in Jesus, is a member of the body of Christ. It's not just your, if you're a believer in Christ, it's not just your soul and spirit that is a member of Christ. Your very body is a member of Jesus. It is connected to Jesus. Now, Paul, yes, he is using a metaphor. I know that. Um, he's using a metaphor of the body. But he's, what he describes is real. My body is as connected to Jesus in real terms, unseen but real terms, as my own arms and legs are connected to my head. Where they go, so it goes. And so, wherever you take your body, you're taking Jesus with you. Some of the Corinthians were visiting prostitutes, evidently. Didn't they realize what they were doing to Jesus? Now, Paul talks about prostitution here. It's likely um, that he's thinking more widely as well about all forms of sexual immorality because that's the word he keeps using. The Greek word for sexual immorality is pornia. It's where we get the word pornography, for example, pornia. He's talk he is talking generally, and the, the, this instance of visiting prostitutes is, uh, seems to be one particular Thing he homes in on out of a variety of issues. And 
really all forms of sexual intimacy outside that plan of God that Jesus affirms by creation and in Jesus' teaching. Um, any form before that, before that marriage has been um, uh, conducted, um, or beyond it, or other than it, actually has the same effect because the body, if it is a member of Christ, brings Christ into that interaction. Jesus is dragged into it, and to Paul, that is unthinkable. Now, someone might say, oh, but, but um, you know, you, that, that's, if it's loving, if it's committed, then it's fine. But my response to that ultimately is, would be, and I, I think in this passage, I think the response would be, but you don't understand the significance of the body. See, it's not the, that, that, that it's the, yes, the, of course, the intent of the mind and the, 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 all that, of course, is, is, is important, but we are not disembodied spirits. We are embodied people. And so it is objectively what we do. It is who we join our body to in what physical context drags Jesus into that act. So let Paul's response be ours. He says it there. It's one of his great, great phrases. Meganoito um, in Greek. May it not be. Never. <laughs> never. Unthinkable, he says. Never. Don't let it be. And then second, he goes on um, to, another, to explain another reason. So we drag Jesus into the action with sexual immorality. The second thing we need to know about sexual sin is that it uniquely sabotages the dignity, the purpose, and the destiny of our own bodies. Um, which is all to do with the way um, sexual intimacy bonds people together as one flesh. Let me read verses 16 to 18. Do you not know, he says, that whoever unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said... The two will become one flesh, quoting Genesis. But whoever unites themselves with the Lord is one with the Lord in spirit, in the Holy Spirit, that is, the Spirit unites us. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body, but the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. So it seems that what Paul is saying, that sex is made, and that reference to, uh, to Genesis Chapter 2, again, affirms it, that sex was made to unite one man and one woman um, uh, until death us do part. But the, uh, but the problem is you take that bonding power, that extraordinary power, into another situation, into another place, and the bonding still takes place, but rather than building up the union of heart and life, as the words of the marriage service says, actually it undermines now, you say, well, how does it undermine? Um, what harm does it do to our own body? Well, the reasoning seems to be that we, because sexual sin uniquely bonds people, it has a unique impact on our bodies in God's sight. But it's not just in God's sight. I think it's also true, and most of us um, who are who have deep sexual regrets, and I use the word us inclusively, of myself as well, most of us who have these sexual regrets know full well that those moments on our past are like scratches on an old vinyl record, and that when our memory replays them, it pains us. Most of us know that deep down. 
And so there's an issue here of, yes, loving the other person. I remember when I was, I must have been about 14, my mum, who's very good, sitting me down and saying, right, Thomas, because that's what she calls me, she says, if you get a girlfriend, which was ambitious at that stage, um, says, if you get a girlfriend um, and you really love her, you won't have sex with her before you're married. That's a bit <laughs> full on, but, okay. She said, she said because you, 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 you will, you, if you really love her, you won't have sex with her until you're ready to father her children and join with her in commitment, in marriage. And I was a bit like, oh, well, that's quite a lot. Well, I tell you what, I, it was, I think that was getting to something that Paul was saying. What I would add a few decades later um, is I would add, say, yes, thanks, Mum. I think that was good advice. So it would be to say, actually, it was, wasn't, wasn't just loving to that other person, that potential other person. It would also have been loving to yourself, Tom, if you had only listened a little bit better. Flee sexual immorality, says Paul, and uh, flee it. I think that, that brings to mind, um, many of you were in Joseph when we did that at, um, at church. Remember Potiphar's wife and Joseph, it's the word, isn't it? Joseph fled from her. Flee. Um, as the old saying goes, with sexual immorality, it is always better to flee than to stay and fight. Very true. The same goes with pornography. Um, flee. Um, okay, so that's, where are we? Yes, a third reason. So we've had a couple of reasons. One is it drags Jesus into it. The other is that it is ultimately a sin against our own bodies. And here's a third reason sexual immorality is so serious. It's quite a famous reason. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you received from God? Do you notice again the dignity of the body as well as our, uh, yes, our, in, our inner lives, of course, are, are, are every bit as important. But you notice the body is the place where the spirit dwells. Of course, this has an application beyond not just the sexual arena, but the, the way we treat our body in all sorts of ways. Um, but here, the emphasis is on the sexual area. Um, will we defile our bodies knowing that they are the, the spirit's holy place? Now, one line of argument against Christianity running right up to the present, and it's always been around a little bit, particularly in the last sort of 250 years or so, it's really become the prominent argument, and particularly in the 20th century, late 19th and 20th centuries, it became very powerful, and now it is overpowering in some circles, is that Christianity, the gospel, is negative about sex and the body that takes a low view of the body. That Christianity is all about making people feel ashamed of basic bodily functions and needs. And lots of, lots of people with great um, rhetorical gusto make these points. So, for example, the French philosopher Michel Onfray writes, listen, he says, Paul's hatred of self turned into a vigorous hatred of the body and all its concerns, life, love, desire, pleasure, sensations, body, flesh, joy, freedom, independence, autonomy. Paul's pen drips a hatred, a contempt, a permanent mistrust for the things of the body. That's very common kind of mindset, certainly among a kind of intellectual um, uh, uh, class today. But it's just false. 
Historically, it's false. Theologically, it's false. Yes, the Bible has a sexual morality that is out of tune with our culture. But of course, our culture has its own sexual morality with its own very tightly prescribed rules. You just try breaking it today. And you'll be absolutely hounded. So our own culture has its rules. The Bible's sexual morality is out of tune with our culture. But Jesus and Paul, rooted in the creation account of Genesis, they exalt the significance of the body and they exalt the goodness of sex. And that's why they speak so clearly. That is precisely why they speak so clearly about the dangers of sexual immorality for everybody who claims to follow Jesus. Our very bodies are members of Christ. They are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies matter profoundly. They are profoundly dignified. They are far more dignified than we could ever dream. And therefore, what we do with them sexually really matters. So Paul has exposed the Corinthians' false assumptions. He's explained the seriousness of sin. Now, much more briefly, he exhorts us to honor God with our bodies. This is a verse to learn, verse 20, end of 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Various themes are coming together in this. Um, so we've got um, freedom. Remember that was one of their issues. Freedom. Yes, we have been purchased. But we are still under ownership. You see that? It's not like we've, it's not like we've been uh, redeemed to belong to no one but ourselves. That would be a nightmare. We've been redeemed and we belong to Jesus. And that includes our bodies. And what, are, what has been purchased by Christ is not just our souls, our sign of spiritual inner lives. No, our very bodies have been purchased as well. So honor God with your body and not just in the area of sex, with our mouths to praise him, our eyes to enjoy what he has made, our hands to serve the people he has made. Now, I'm coming to an end um, now of all of this. I don't know how all of this has come across um, to you. You may be all sorts of reactions. Angry at a teaching you resent, or, or, and, 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 or perhaps um, angry at the harsh and, uh, and unkind and judgmental way the church has often taught it, and that, that, um, that is only fair. Or the hypocritical way the church itself has disobeyed it. Again, entirely fair. Or you may be ashamed, knowing that this is a teaching you have disobeyed and never really come to terms with. Or even perhaps despairing, because you think, I want to live like this, but I feel powerless actually to do it. Well, let's go back to that woman with whom I started. That woman who came to Jesus. I don't know where that woman's body, what, what um, situations that body uh, had been in, that, per that woman. I don't know how she viewed her own body. I can imagine perhaps how some of her clients might have viewed her body. But they certainly didn't see her as Jesus saw her, forgiving her sin, claiming her soul and her body for God. A body that was now uh, free to live 
with a new dignity, washed, sanctified, justified. Was, was she going to need to change? May we need to reorient, change what's going on? Yes, quite probably. Well, she certainly did. And change would not have been easy. But it would have been life-giving. Life-giving to soul and body because her very body was joined to Christ. Her very body had become a temple of the Spirit of God. It wasn't like that before. It was now destined for eternal bodily life at the resurrection. It's profoundly and wonderfully good news. And that is the power of Jesus' teaching on the body, the sex. In his day, it was the power, and it's the power today. At last, a deliverance from the slavery to desire, addiction, shame, abuse even, and into purity, dignity, life, and true freedom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are not easy words for me to preach, and they're not easy words for us to hear. Um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through his gentle conviction. May there be a new clarity in our hearts and a sense among all of us who belong to you that our bodies are holy to you and must be treated in that way. Come to us, we pray now, in our great weakness, perhaps even in our deep uh, need for healing here and transform our lives. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.